Job chapter 1, verse 13. Now the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, um, over the last several weeks, we have covered uh, this portion of Job in chapter 1 under these three headings, or four headings, I should say. Uh, We've covered them under one the character of Job, two, the character of Job maligned, three, the character of Job tested, and four, the character of Job expressed. We found the character of Job in verses one through five. God described Job as blameless, upright, fearing the Lord, and turning away from evil. He was considered a blameless man, an upright man, a man who feared God and walked in the fear of God by turning away from evil. Job was a man who was faithful to his children, not only concerned about their outward expression of their character, but also the inward reality of their hearts as he he would often offer up sacrifices just in case his children had thought to blaspheme God in their own hearts. And so Job was faithful to his children. He was a faithful man to his wife as well. In fact, we find in Job chapter 31, verse 1, that Job made a covenant with his eyes that he would not gaze at a virgin. This was a a testimony of how Job related to his wife. He was devoted to her. He was devoted to his family. Uh, he was a wealthy man. He was, a, uh, he was endowed by God with significant wealth. And again, as I said to you last week, I think as God highlights Job's character and his wealth, I think that was purposeful as we, as we now can see how uh, significantly Job, Job's decline is because of what Satan did to him. And so, in contrast to Job's test, or God's testimony of Job, Satan had a testimony concerning Job 
in verses 6 through 12, where Satan accused Job of only serving God because of what God had did for him. So Satan contradicts the glowing statements concerning Job's character with the words that we find in verses 9 through 11 with the accusation that Job only fears God because God had given him prosperity and a hedge to protect him. Satan's claim is that if God were to remove this hedge and take away Job's prosperity, Job would curse God to his face. Last week, we began to look at the character of Job tested. And we looked at that under these three subheadings. The depth of Job's test, the derivation of Job's test, and the design of Job's test. God allowed Satan to unleash his fury on Job. And so we see in this the depth of Job's test. As he, we see the, 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 the test coming one after another and in haste, with unceasing fury. And they seem to be crescendoing and, 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 and coming to a climax, but it, they keep coming one after another. And so we see in that the depth of Job's test, although limited by God's hand, Job's tests were probably, for most of us, beyond our ability to handle. I believe that as we saw the limitation of Job's testing by Satan when God said, you can do these things but spare his life or his, do not touch his body. I believe that Job would not have been able to handle if God had allowed him to touch his body at that time. And so later on, God actually gives him the opportunity to even touch Job's body in chapter 2, 1 through 10. And so he, his body also is afflicted with trouble from Satan. And so we saw last week the depth of Job's test. We also saw the derivation of Job's test. What I mean by the derivation or where did this test derive from? Where did it, what was its source? And we saw that trials and difficulty come from multiple sources. Sometimes our trial comes, trials come from our own sin. We talked of the principle of sowing and reaping. We sow what we reap, or we reap what we sow. And so we saw that sometimes our trials come from our own sin. Sometimes our trials, our difficulties, come from living in the fallen world. We are afflicted by fallen creatures, a creation that is fallen and, and groaning to be released from its imprisonment, and from an evil one, a fallen angel, Satan himself. But we said that although sometimes those, our trials come from those things, we know that always, the hand of God is behind our trials, always. Thomas Watson said it this way, God always has a hand in the action where sin occurs, 
but he never has a hand in the sin of that action that occurs. God's hand is always there. God's hand is always in the trouble. I asked you the question last week, are you faithful with your trials? I, I even asked you the question which someone uh, expressed to me was a, a bit troubling in their minds. They, I asked the question, are you a good steward of your suffering? Are you a good steward of your suffering? So the question arises, how do we steward our suffering and our trials? How are we to be a good steward of those, in a sense, those divine providential gifts of trouble that God brings to our way, brings our way. How are we to steward those things? Well, how do we steward other things that God has given to us? How do we steward our money and time or wealth and time? First of all, we have to know something about money. We have to know something about time. We have to know, first of all, where does our wealth come from? Who gives us our time? We have to know that those things are limited. That time and money are limited. We don't have an infinite amount of either one of those. We have to know that we're not to waste or squander our money or our time. And we're to use our money to minister to the needs of others. And so I believe that we apply those things and also we are to glorify, use our money and our time to glorify God. And so I think if we apply those same principles to our affliction, I think we end up being good stewards of our affliction. We have to know who God is, just like we have to know who gives us our money, who gives us our time. We have to know where our trials come from. As we've said before, we have to know that our suffering, our trials, ultimately come from the hand of God. Job knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, these things. In Job 19, verse 25 through 26, it says here, Job says here, he, he makes a proclamation here that he knows his God. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And this is in the midst of his suffering and his trial. Now, I want you to understand, Job's trials are not just, we see that this is not a couple of hours or a few days. These, these, we know at least these things are occurring over the time of three of several months here. You can see this in chapter 7, I do believe, is that these, his, his, his suffering is, is, a, is an extended amount of time. It's is happening over an extended amount of time. The boils that he was, boils that he was, he was afflicted with have been long upon his body. He says, as for me, in verse 25, I, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet for my flesh, also I shall see God. 
And so we, we take from this that Job was thinking in his mind that God is alive and he is in control of all that is taking place. He says he will take his stand on the earth. He will rule over all things. And so Job sees that God is sovereign over his affliction. Job isn't thinking that somehow he is the victim of uh, some sort of arbitrary uh, response of chance and, 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 and whatever. He, he, he knows with, beyond a shadow of a doubt where his affliction comes from. This is why Job was able to say, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understands this unequivocally that, that God's hand is behind this. And so if we are to be good stewards of our trials and our suffering, as I said last week, this is suffering 101. We have to know the source of those things. Because if we think that we are the victims of blind, arbitrary chance, there's no hope in that. But Job is a man who had hope. In his book, on the book of Job, his commentary on the book of Job, Steve Lawson has said this. He says, see the simplicity of knowing God. In the absence of understanding why a particular tragedy has struck, the believer simply needs to know who is in control. God himself. God's thoughts are high above our thoughts, and his ways are far above our ways. Absolutely sovereign, yet infinitely wise, God's ways are perfect. Thus, we can trust him. When tragedy strikes, there are no explanations sent from God explaining why such an ordeal has just been unleashed upon our lives. In the midst of life's tragedies, when we must most want answers, so often there are none. In these difficult hours... We must simply trust God. In order to trust God, you have to do what? You have to know God. And so we have to know our God. If we are to steward our, be good stewards of our trials, then we must know God. Secondly, we must know that our trials are temporary. We must know that they are temporary. Job understood this. This is why he is saying here in, in chapter 19, verse 25, and he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. He knows there's a, a duration of his suffering, that it won't be forever. I think the New Testament attests to this. This is, the, this is the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 17. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so we have to see that our trials and understand that our trials are temporary. 
Whatever trial we're enduring right now, whether you have been in that trial for a week, a month, a year, or from the time you were born, it's temporary because there's a time in that when that will end because there's a day of resurrection. In, and I believe that that is another thing that we must know. We must know that there will be a resurrection. I think Job understood this. This is why he says here, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. He knew with certainty that although he was enduring a trial that was, I would say, unbearable, he knew that someday he would see God. He had the hope of heaven. He had the hope of resurrection. And we must have this hope as well. The resurrection of our bodies gives us hope in our time of affliction, in our time of suffering. Because we know that someday our suffering will end, and whether it be of a, of a nature where our bodies are afflicted with, with uh, pain and suffering right now, we must have confidence that someday that suffering will end and we will have a resurrected body. God will, will raise us up from the dead. He will give to us a new body by the power of Christ Jesus. By the almighty power of God, those crumbling, corrupted bodies that we walk in now will be resurrected. I got a knee issue right now. When I sit for about 15 to 20 minutes, I get up walking like a 75-year-old man who's had two knee surgeries. It's painful. But I know, I know that someday, someday that will be restored. It will be restored. The resurrection gives us hope. This is why Paul, when he, when he spoke of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, when he gave that, gave that long exposition of the resurrection, he then said, let the resurrection be an encouragement to you now, therefore, he says, my beloved brethren, verse 58, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so you have to know that there will be a resurrection. If we are to steward our trials and our difficulties now, we must know God. We must know that our trials are temporary and we must know that someday there's going to be a resurrection, which means, by the way, Sometimes our affliction comes through the hands of others. There's going to be a day of judgment, too. Okay, we, we, we have to understand that and be arrested with that as well. There's going to be a day of judgment. And God will right all the wrongs. If we're to steward our trials in, in light of that, we must meditate, then, on God and not on our trials or our trouble. That's not where our minds need to dwell on. We don't need to dwell on our trials. We don't need to dwell on our trouble. We need to dwell on God. We need to consider who he is. We need to have our mind not taken up with the trouble, 
but with the God whose hand is in the trouble. That corrects our thinking. It's what Pastor Greg has been preaching on in Philippians 4 when he preached through those portions related to standing firm. If we're to endure our, our, like Job here, if we're to endure like Job and have that, and at the end of that time have a, a steadfast faith in God, then our mind must be taken up with who God is, not our trouble. When we do that, by the way, when we, when we take our, our minds are taken up with our problems and our issues and our trouble, what's produced? Anxiety. Sometimes we think, if I just think through my, my, my trouble right now, my trials, and think about how to solve that, sometimes we think, not that we don't want to think through those things, of course, but if that's what's, what takes up the brunt of our time and the brunt of our energies, then we're not thinking about what God has called for us. The remedy for our, our, our anxiety is to not think on our trial, to not dwell on the trouble, but to think on the God whose hand is in the trouble. When we do that, the ship is steadied. Calm sets in. And the peace of God, this is what it says, the peace of God, what? Rules in our hearts. Okay? The peace of God will rule in our hearts. I would say this too. We we are to meditate on, on God and not on the trouble. We, in light of that, we need to speak more about God than about our trial as well. Let that take up your conversation. Oh, yeah, 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 I got some trouble, but let me tell you about my God whose hand was able to deliver me, who's able to be, who's faithful to me in the midst of my trouble. The good God who, whose hand is even behind these things. I'd say also purposefully use your trial to be a platform for a proclamation of the faithfulness of God. Use your trial. It's like you use your money to minister to others. Use your trial as a proclamation of the faithfulness and goodness of God. Finally, use your affliction to be a comfort to those who have also been afflicted. This is how we are good stewards of those trials and troubles that God brings our way. 2 Corinthians 1 says here, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's how you use your affliction to the glory of God. We glorify God in our affliction. We glorify God in our affliction by serving others in our affliction. And so, wrapping up those things concerning the stewardship that we have over our trials, let us turn now to the third subheading of 
the character of Job tested, and that is the design of Job's test. The design of Job's test. What was the purpose behind Job's testing? In October of 2020, in a massively brutal attack, a Texas woman murdered her friend by stabbing her 100 times with a medical scalpel. The same scalpel, by the way, that we use, that this woman used to, to, to commit such a horrendous crime, can also be used by a trained surgeon to perform life-saving procedure. The same scalpel that was used by this woman for evil can be used by a surgeon for good, to heal. She used the scalpel to kill. A surgeon, a trained surgeon, can use the scalpel to heal. This is true with our trials. Satan uses the trial of Job to, to destroy his faith. And so Satan's design was to get Job to profane the name of God. Satan intended Job's trial to tempt him to sin. God's design was to get Job to prove the character of Job. It is to prove the character of Job. That Job was a faithful man. And so God's intent, God intended Job's trial to test him, not to tempt him. Satan intended it to tempt him to sin against God. God designed it to test Job, to prove the character of God. So you can think about it in these two words. Satan intended it to profane the name of God. God intended it to prove the character of God. And so, sometimes trials can either lead to a temptation on our behalf, if we do not handle them rightly, or it can be just a test of God to prove our character and to prove who he is. And so we find in the book of James, James chapter 1, where James actually is seen here in James chapter 1, or it speaks here of Turn there quickly. He says here in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so... James here speaks of, of this trial here that we are enduring, that we may endure, that it's used to test our faith, to prove whether or not we are walking with God, we even belong to God. 
This is what's spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, if you turn there with me, Peter uses this same language to those suffering Christians of the dispersion. It says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, that's temporary, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the trial that these who, whom Peter is speaking to is for the purpose of proving their faith. Who do you belong to? Where does your, where does your allegiance lie? Are you walking in faith? Or are, you, are you not walking in faith? I had someone that I spoke with some time ago. And as they lay on their bed, very sick, they spoke of the fact that the way they responded in their sickness, they realized they could not have been a Christian. Because a Christian would not have responded the way that they responded. They realized that something's wrong, something's amiss here then. I can't be saved. I can't be a believer because this is not how a believer would respond. And so we see this reality in the scriptures where a test can be used to prove. In Revelations 2, which we just read recently, verse 1 and 2, it speaks here of the church at Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test of those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And so that word there, you put them to the test, is the same word we use for test. It also can be translated as temptation. You put to the test. The context determines how does to be translated. So here it's to be, it's called a test. You put them to the test. Why do they put them to the test? To prove to show forth the reality of who they are. It shows us who we are. This is what trials do to us. They reveal the heart. It can reveal if you have gods in your life that are not the true God. If you get sick, Depending on how you handle that sickness, it could be that you have an idol of health and comfort in your life. If you fall on hard times financially, depending on how we respond to that, it could prove whether or not we trust God or we trust money. It proves 
something about us. And this is what Satan is doing. Satan is trying to tempt Job to sin, but God is proving the faithfulness of this man, Job. This man, Job, he's saying here, he is a choice servant of mine. He is a man of God. He is a true man of God. He does not serve me because of the things that I give to him. Job serves me because he knows that I am worthy to be served. His motives are pure and true and right and God given to him. This is not because of the outward things that I have 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 heaped upon him because of my blessing. No, Job understands. No, this is true of Job. I mean, God understands. No, this is true of Job because Job does this because of who I am. I'm worthy to be praised. He intended it. Satan, that is, for evil. But God intended it for good. We sing a hymn entitled, How Firm a Foundation. We sing four verses of, I think there are six verses of that hymn, and I'm going to read to you a couple of those verses that we don't usually deal with. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. At some point, maybe we can, when you're preparing those, maybe you can throw them in there. We can pick those up. But they're wonderful portions of that hymn. Uh, Here's one that we do not sing. When through the deep waters, I call thee to go. He's saying, I call thee to go. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. God is using those. He's saying here, I'm going to use those to, dis- to sanctify thee to, these, to your deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. Why not? He says, because I only design. God knows how much we can endure. He doesn't hurt us. Remember what he said to Job. He said to Satan, this far you can go and no further. Don't hurt his body. Later on, don't take his life. God is ultimately controlling that. God is the one who's designed it. He knows our frame. He knows your frame. He knows my frame. The trial that God gives to you is not the same trial he will give to me because God knows my frame. God will press us to the the extent of our ability because he knows that we need to trust him and he knows where where that line is for each of us. Your line may be here or here or here. My line may not be there. And so God might press you with certain trials and your trials are, as I've said to you in the past, they are tailor made for you. Now, we have, of course, common temptations. But the specifics of your trial are tailor made for you. 
you've got sickness in your body, that's a tailor-made trial for you. Whether it be a permanent affliction, a temporary affliction, that is for you. If you have a wayward child, that affliction is for you. Because God knows what you need. He knows how to test you. It's like an athlete. You push an athlete to the limits of his, of his strength and his, his, his endurance. And then he stops. And then he does it again. He keeps doing it over and over again. And then someday he's stronger. He's able to do that. He's able to go a little bit further. And God uses that to build our faith. I told my son recently, he was asking me about working out, and I told him, I said, if you, want to, if you want to build your endurance for basketball, a basketball game, you need to run two and a half miles. So that's about how, how far you run in a full game, about two and a half miles. So I said, run two and a half miles. If you do that, you'll find that you are able to. And he, he did that. He started doing that. Next game he played, he was like, my wind was, was much better this time. And God does this when he pushes us to that limit. Where it's, it, it is actually beyond our strength. You know that, right? You know it's beyond our strength because if it was in, within your strength, you wouldn't need God. He pushes you beyond your strength because if he did not push you beyond your strength, you would not cry out to God for help. And where you are right now, Whatever that trial is, God is pushing you beyond your strength because he knows that if you are, it's within your strength and your ability to handle that, you wouldn't handle it. You would, you would do it on your own. And so, whatever that may be, whatever that may be, remember that God is faithful. He is faithful and has come from his hands. Joe, uh, Joseph understood this. He understood that nature of, of that dual design there. He understood the dual design of his trouble. Sold into slavery by his own brother, brethren, his own brothers. Uh, uh, imprisoned twice uh, forsaken by those who he thought would be of aid to him. But God in his kindness and compassion raised him up. His brothers come back and they are speaking with him and they find out who he is and his father dies. And they're, they're wondering, okay, well, is this man, this, this Joseph now, our brother that we sold into slavery, what's he going to do now? Is he going to kill us now? Is he going to have us destroyed? And what did, what did he say? What did, what did Joseph say? He says, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? He's letting them know this is God's place. I'm not in God's place to, to now bring judgment upon you because of what you did. God brought this upon me. He says, and as far as you, you meant evil against me. You meant it to destroy me. He says, but God meant it for good. 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He knew he meant it for good. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In John chapter 11, we have another occasion where men intended something for evil, but God intended it for good. In John chapter 11, verse 48, it says, if we let him go, speaking of these are the religious leaders, it says, all men will believe in him, speaking of Jesus, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he meant that for evil, didn't he? We say that was evil. In fact, it says, verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus was murdered. He was murdered. It was a plot. It was a conspiracy. They conspired to kill the Son of God. But if you keep reading, it says here, verse 51, now, Speaking of Caiaphas, now he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. They meant it to kill the Son of God. God used it as a means to rescue fallen man. They meant it to to carry out the the wickedness in their heart. God did it to express his love for humanity and for those whom he had had purposed to send his son for. And so when we see these truths from the scriptures, we see, yeah, man intended it for for evil, but God intends it for good. And so what they try to achieve in their machinations, in their wickedness, hey, then thwart the plan of God. God uses their evil and their wickedness. They would express what they would only do anyway. God didn't put any fresh evil in their heart. This is what they are. They were murderous people. God used that to bring about the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, prophesied hundreds of years before that this would be the means on a cross because Cursed is he who, who is buried or died on the who, who's, who's crucified on the cross. Let us stop this eve, this morning for sake of time. Let me just end with a few things here, just to remind you here. 
Just remember, God's design in our trial is that we become conformed to the image of Christ. God's design in our trial is that we become less attached to this world and long more for heaven. God's design in our trial is to show forth the genuineness of our faith. And God's design in our trials is that we would walk humbly before God. Let us close with the word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would use these things in the hearts of your people. Give us what we need, Lord, that we might endure our trials, Lord, maybe in like manner like Job, that we would endure with, um, have the endurance of Job, that we would do it to your glory, we would be stewards of our trial, we would not waste our, 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 our suffering, that we would use them to minister to others. For your name's sake we pray in Christ's name, amen.